any public institution has a brand and is a brand. And I've been thinking about that since our preparatory talk uh, uh, last week and, and the preceding talks before that. I think with the constitutional court of necessity, the brand, all brands have to be rooted in substance. You can get away with a lot in marketing and commercialization and sales, but in, in something like product delivery in a legal setting, it's got to be rooted in substance. And the angles of substance, the aspects of substance that I've been thinking of are obviously integrity. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Hello. Today on the podcast, I have the great honor of talking to Judge Edwin Cameron. Judge Cameron retired in August 2019 after 25 years service as a judge, the last 11 in South Africa's highest court, the Constitutional Court. Before that, he served in the Supreme Court of Appeal for eight years and the High Court for six. During apartheid, he was a human rights lawyer. He fought for LGBTI equality and helped attain the historic inclusion of sexual orientation in South Africa's constitution. As someone living with HIV, he's a fierce critic of President Mbeki's AIDS denialist policies. He has two prize-winning memoirs. He holds an honorary degree from six universities. And after stepping down as a judge, he was elected Chancellor of Stellenbosch University and appointed Judicial Inspector of Correctional Services. We talk about creating real values in a way that gives them substance, how shared commitment is important but difficult, and when you get that right, you can take the wrong path, but ultimately course correct. And if you want to do all of this, there's a need for strong leaders who set a tradition and back that up with real process. Enjoy. Judge Cameron, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. And it's a great honor for me to be able to use the platform I have to speak to to somebody like yourself. So thank you for coming to the podcast. A great joy for, and an opportunity for me, Ross. And thank you for your trouble uh, in arranging this and preparing it. Brilliant. So, I mean, you know, you were one of the things you were nervous about when we started our conversation was, you know, what are you going to talk about branding? And as far as as far as I'm concerned, the sort of the Constitution Court and Constitution Hill as a, a sort of a brand, I think is one of the strongest that we have in, in South Africa, you know, especially if we look at other sort of governmental organizations. It's one of the few brands that sort of people still hold with a high esteem. And and you were very much involved in 
in the sort of conceptualizing and setting up of that. So I'd, I'd love you to, to talk a little bit about that and, and share with the audience. That's what intrigued me, Ross, because I, I, I really wasn't sure what I'd be able to say to you. And until you said this interesting concept of the constitutional court being a brand. And of course, you're right, because any public institution has a brand and is a brand. And I've been thinking about that since our preparatory talk uh, last week and, and the preceding talks before that. Uh, I think with the constitutional court, of necessity, the brand, all brands have to be rooted in substance. You can get away with a lot in marketing and commercialization and sales, but in, in something like product delivery in a legal setting, it's got to be rooted in substance. And the angles of substance, the aspects of substance that I've been thinking of are obviously integrity. You can't pull a fast one uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a judging forum because your reasons have to be given. They have to be transparent and they have to be coherent and they subjected to very, very rigorous scrutiny. And then what are the values that you are exercising? This is all going to start off being abstract, Ross, but we'll, we'll get into nitty gritty <laughs> if, 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 we, if we get there. Uh, what are those values? And I think they're, they're obviously the values of the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution has a lavish and generous set of values, which I think can be summarized as human solidarity, uh, as obviously consistency in terms of the rule of law, uh, rationality, and, and civility. Uh, again, very abstract thoughts, but it comes down to the promise of human dignity. It comes down to the promise of equality, which we are very far from fulfilling. And it comes down very importantly. We are recording 10 days after the mass eruption of, of terrible violence and disorder and, and insurrection. Uh, it comes down to our failed promise of providing everyone with the minimum the needs of life. Uh, and the Constitutional Court, I agree, and the legal system and the rule of law have hung on this past week after the Zuma insurrection. People are calling it on media, the Zuma riots and the Zuma insurrection. So I'll, I'll simply tag along with, with that characterization <laughs> for convenience. But uh, we, we've, we've hung on, but uh, not securely, and we have to redouble, rethink, redouble, and redo. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some really interesting lessons for for businesses in how this was all set up because there was so much sort of conversation before the constitution was written and inclusion and you know like kind of all the stakeholders were rigorously kind of engaged in the setting up of these documents and the setting up of these values um, which I think so often doesn't happen in in more commercial spaces. It's often a leadership team that decides what it is, and then that just sort of is that. So I think there's definitely something interesting in people feeling a sense of ownership of this and pe feeling a sense of contribution to it. And then at the same time, the organization doesn't 
then behave in a different way to the the kind of principles and values that it sets out. I mean, it's been tested multiple times, and and the judges and the the, the people of the court seem to stand up again and again and again. You know, even if it's been sort of bashed multiple times with multiple challenges from multiple kind of people, it still seems to be quite strong there. I think that's right, Ross. Uh, I, I want to go back a few steps with what you've said. One shouldn't over-mythologize the element of public participation. It's highly contested in our country. For example, the Freedom Char- Charter was alleged to have been written by a small band of white communists, mainly Jewish communists. Uh, uh, and yet the Freedom Charter, it, it doesn't matter about its provenance. The fact is that it was uh, an evocative and quite moving charter of elementary entitlements and commitments on the part of those struggling against apartheid. And the same is true of the Constitution. There, there are a lot of analyses that say that this was not a true proletarian or democratic revolution. It was a compacting of elites. Uh, and to some extent it was. The ANC elite and the uh, outgoing apartheid elite did a deal. But it was also more than that. And I, I'm, I'm agreeing with your point. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm getting to your point now, having made those important qualifications. I think what they came up with had a deep integrity. And I agree with you that every time it's been tested, it's been shown to be resilient and to have depth. Let me give you the example of the land clause, section 25. A great deal of rhetoric, I think, with Tembeka Nukai Tobi, misdirected rhetoric for angry political purposes, often angry, racially loaded political purposes, has been directed at the Constitution's clause on the protection, on, on, on entitlement to land access. There's no right to property in the Constitution. There's protection of property from arbitrary uh, deprivation. And that's all in, in, in that crucial clause. Uh, after all the rhetoric, after all the uh, uh, nationwide meetings, nationwide consultations, parliamentary sittings, no one has demonstrated that, in fact, that clause at all needed to be amended. And with the absence of unanimity between the parties to the parliamentary parties, it looks as though the much claimed amendment. Uh, might not even take place. So what I want to say, it's a bit like the South African flag, which was, there's also dispute about its provenance, by the way. Uh, The the head of the the government heraldry department got credit for doing it. Someone still claims that he gave him the idea. But the flag caught on. It doesn't matter about its provenance. Did it have genuine appeal? Did it have genuine signification in the ideas and the aspirations and the emotions of people? Yes, it did. Uh, And I think the Constitution's values, especially the Bill of Rights, do that as well. The fact that we failed them, the fact that we haven't fulfilled them, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying much better, which is why I said at the beginning, we've got to rethink, redo and redouble. I mean, I think there's some some really interesting thoughts in there that it's not, I suppose, not as important to 
to put like the the weight in the process it's more that the things that we create like are they of value are they serving the intentions that we set out for them to serve and then as an organization do we actually uphold that and even if we haven't necessarily achieved everything we want to it doesn't mean that you can't go back to it and go okay well looking at this we need to work harder we need to try again we need to so you know that didn't work out round one let's go back for round two round three and round four agreed and we should be willing to do that all the time for 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 me the, the question is was what was produced, whether it's a flag or whether it's a set of values or whether it's a set of entitlements and rights and obligations, did it have a, a, a resonant integrity? And I think our constitution conspicuously had that. And 27 years later, uh, I'm talking now uh, indiscriminately of the interim constitution, which was succeeded by a much more deliberated final constitution in 1996. And even that is now 25 years old. Uh, I think that conspicuously that constitution and the composite sense had that. Mm. And now, like I'm very interested in in almost the the, the court and the structure and the, the people that fill it, because, you know, one of the other guests on this podcast, Luando, who actually connected us, you know, she said something that was really, well, she said two things that really stuck with me. She was like, one is that she believes the constitution is almost the the purpose of all the businesses in South Africa need to look at that and go, well, how are they contributing to that? And I love that concept that there can be a collective thinking in, in business to go, well, are we fulfilling the promise that we as a nation have set out in? But the other thing she said is that she really believed that the people who worked there embodied the values of the like of of the court and you know she cited a few examples of how you treated her and how you managed her and how you guided her and how you even kind of disagreed with her and fought with her and argued with her on things because that's part of what it was and she ultimately said that there's all sorts of judgments that the court has done that she doesn't agree with, but she agrees in the values and the process so much that she accepts the outcome of that decision. So it doesn't mean that she has to like it, but she really does believe that from a values perspective, it has upheld what the the court stood for. I think that's, I think that's right. And, and it, it's partly a question of institutional continuity and of the people who are the, the the personnel who are peopling that institution and we started with a very powerful set of personnel led by Arthur Chaskelson and Pius and Konzo Langa chief justice and deputy chief justice uh, both of whom had conspicuous integrity and humility and a commitment to making the constitution real, not just for a pampered elite, not just for a, a racial subgroup, but for everyone. Uh, and that tradition, and, and also a tradition of, of commitment, uh, you've mentioned process, and I think process is important in law because you can't just pick your outcomes in law. You've got to uh, commit yourself to a process of hearing, of argument, uh, of uh, reasoning, 
of debate, and then eventually you come up with an answer. Uh, and I think that the first constitutional court, uh, the last judges who left, uh, the last Mandela-appointed judge was my colleague, uh, Justice Zach Yacoub, who left in 2012, at the beginning of 2012, having taken office uh, 15 years before. Uh, I think that they did embody that. They were, they were clearly all people with, with foibles and failings and deficiencies, but that they did embody. They had a serious commitment to equality, to human dignity, to uh, the absence of torture, degrade, degrading conditions, uh, and to the delivery to everyone in the country of uh, those social and economic rights that we are still struggling to give to so many people, hungry school kids, people without sanitation, people in the rain. Uh, but their commitment was serious, and, and that was also important. So, Love, I mean, the, the elements I'm pulling out there is that the, the sort of the makeup of this is a, a strong set of leaders, you know, and those leaders are driven by their personal values and those personal values are then translated into organizational values. And those values are then sort of supported by setting up traditions that, that embody those values or make sure that they happen. And the way that becomes practical is creating a process that people can follow. So it's, it's almost like it starts quite conceptual and quite lofty and then when it gets down to a process level it's it's quite practical and it's something that anyone you know who's been kind of explained the process can follow quite easily i think that's if i'm paraphrasing you well enough i think you've summed it up well ross and, and let let's get uh let's get let's get uh practical for for our listeners the Grootboom judgment was a famous judgment we're now in the middle of a bitter winter. Today, as we record, Gauteng has just received the sharp end of, of cold and wet from the Western Cape and probably snow in the Eastern Cape and over Lesotho. It was in this kind of winter that the Grootboom case was launched because people had occupied a piece of land set aside for development by, by the Western Cape government for other people. Uh, and they were sought to be evicted from it, and there wasn't sufficient provision made for them. And the Grootboom case became a, a, a celebrated cause because Mrs. Grootboom, uh, who was one of the residents of Wallace Dean, died a few years after the case without actually having been given a government house. And some anti-constitutionalists say, well, what was the use of the constitution? The Legal Resources Centre, Jeff Budlander, in a wonderful argument before the court. I, I sat in the, that court. I still remember it to this day. Uh, took her case all the way, and she died without a house. Well, that, that's a process point, and it's also a point about human institutions. What the Grootboom case was, did was to set aside government's housing policy because it did not make provision for the poorest of the poor. It said, look at what we're doing. This is our policy. We've created millions of bricks and mortar houses. We've uh, provided sanitation. We've provided electrification. 
And then the court said to government, but what about the people who are most vulnerable, who are most exposed, who are most needful? You haven't done that. Go back and rethink. And government should have come back with a policy and perhaps practical solutions that offered Mrs. Krugberg a more immediate remedy. But the longer-term remedy that the court gave was, I think, the right one. That's very interesting, and it, it sort of—I mean, I'd love to—I'd love to hear from you an example where the sort of the values of the court played out in a way that you didn't necessarily, you on a personal level weren't happy with, but on a court level feel like it was a the right thing to do. Well, what about I give you an example of both where I wasn't happy. <laughs> Uh, Ross, let me tell you, I've, I've been asked this before, so I'm repeating what I've said on public radio just after my retirement. I was asked, is there any case that I regret? And the one case was a racially loaded case. It was about a police officer called Mrs. Barnard, who was an outstandingly qualified, dedicated, devoted police officer who was recommended twice by black committees of her black peers for promotion at police HQ. And twice, a uh, police commissioner appointed by uh, President Mbeki, Jackie Salibi, later imprisoned for corruption, which also is a footnote to our tragic constitutional history because President Mbeki, for that fracas, uh, sought to dismiss uh, his national director of public prosecutions uh, um, Advocate Vusi Pekoli, which is itself a tragedy which will bracket now. But I think that the legal system let down Mrs. Barnard, and I think I let her down. We dissented on the basis. What happened is that Mrs. Barnard went to the Labour Court, it held against it, went to the Labour Appeal Court, headed at that point uh, by Judge Dennis Davis, who found for her and said she's been twice recommended. Uh, we reversed that and said the commissioner's decision was not put in issue before us. The plan under which the commissioner said, uh, these are our targets, Mrs. Barnard doesn't fall within our targets, that plan wasn't challenged. And yet I thought that we let down Mrs. Barnard and she was a white woman, I'm a white man. Uh, I, I still have a lingering unease about that. I think the court, the majority, it was, a, I think, a 6-3 decision with uh, my colleague, Johan Frunemann, and Judge Stephen Majit, who, unlike us, Frunemann and me, is not white. Uh, we, we dissented on the reasons, but we agreed in the outcome. And I'm sorry we didn't take a stand for Mrs. Barnard on the outcome as well. What we should have said is that Police Commissioner Jackie Salibi should have appointed her. And those quotas or those, those goals are not quotas. She was so conspicuously entitled to an appointment, she should have been given it. We didn't do that. And I think my legal imagination failed us all there, and our legal imagination failed us all there. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an example where I'll go even further than you were suggesting. So now, I mean, I'm interested, if we look kind of globally, I would say that the 
the level of trust in government institutions is probably the lowest that it's been in a, a long time. Like people don't trust the information that's coming from government. If we look locally, like the the any kind of state-owned entity, people, even if they're doing the best work on earth, people just don't believe in them. They don't trust them. They don't like them. They don't have a, a positive kind of view on it. But then when I come back to the courts, the constitution courts, it's something that's, that if almost everyone I speak to in South Africa still feels like it's they can trust it and that it's it's something that's got value whether they agree with what's happening there or not. Like it, it doesn't have the same hasn't been put in the same box as most of the other departments locally. And if I look globally, even a lot of the kind of things there. What do you think the South African Constitution Court did? that's so different to all of these other entities that's allowed people to keep them in a, in a kind of positive space and a positive light. I think it, it goes back to some of the things that, that, that we've traversed, uh, Ross, which is, I think, commitment to values that had authenticity and integrity. Practically, this is not a, a feel-good uh, issue, authenticity and integrity. It's do these values in practical realization have authenticity and integrity? And I think they do. Then it also, and this is important, I think it was also work ethic. My goodness, we worked hard. I can't say that for all of my colleagues, but a lot of people worked really, really hard. And I think that was something of what was lost, especially in the Zuma years, where a, uh, a sense of, of uh, greedy looting took over where you occupy a position and you want the car and you want the attendance and you want the prestige and you want the income, but you don't want to do any work. You, you occupy a public post in order to deliver, whether you're a judge or whether you're a local government official or, or anyone receiving public money for your income. And certainly the Constitutional Court, when I was there, I was there for 11 years and the Appeal Court for eight years and the High Court for six. You, you cannot live in a, an unequal country where there's so many dispossessed, marginalized people without feeling impelled to very, very hard work. And Arthur Chaskelson and Pius Langa and the other first judges of the Constitutional Court embodied that. Uh, and then delivering. Uh, I think the Constitutional Court's processes were reasonably efficient. They haven't always been efficient. Sometimes there's been very long delays. Uh, so I think it, it's, it's a combination of values, commitment, seriously hard work, plus delivery. And I think those were the things. It wasn't that we just had Stalin's Russia had a glorious constitution. Uganda under Idi Amin had a glorious constitution. Uh, their glorious constitutions dotted throughout history since the late uh, uh, 18th century. But you've got to match the glories of your constitution's verbiage with actual results. And to... Uh, perceptible and I think even significant extent, the Constitutional Court over the last 27 years 
has in fact achieved that. I fully agree. Uh, I mean, I, I love, there's a few things in there that, that I'd love to highlight. I think the one is that, you know, it's, saying you have integrity or saying that you put people first or saying any of these kind of things that, that you'll find in so many companies is one thing. Actually, when you look at the the behavior and the delivery that happens, like do, do those thoughts or those concepts come to life, I think is so huge. And we live in a time where I think people are getting more, more and more jaded and more and more cynical, but that means they're being more critical of the statements that companies are making. I mean, we can see Jeff Bezos is currently being dragged through the mud because he thanked everyone for sending him to space. And then his workers are turning around going, yeah, well, we did that because you didn't give us any healthcare or any decent salaries or, you know, so, so I think the kind of reflection of people is much stronger. And I think that's definitely a lesson for people. And I think the other one that you said there, which is so, so important is the, the delivery, it doesn't matter, you know, like if you've got this amazing message and these amazing marketing collateral and all of this stuff, if you don't actually do the thing that you said you would do, it all fails. And it's probably even better to have a bad constitution and deliver well than it is to have a great constitution and deliver poorly. That's the probably more value for the average citizen in the other way around. That's very interesting, Ross. I, I want to, to revert to something that we discussed in our preparation for this meeting last week and before. And it's, it's, it's something that I always think about and refer to without any complacency or self-satisfaction. It, it's it's the, the tradition of the rule of law. And the rule of law is rightly attacked as positing and creating a, a rule of law for the rich and the entitled. And why I say rightly is that the vainglorious concept of equality before the law is, is, is often an empty one. But yet the rule of law embodies some deeply important issues. And when the white Dutch, Dutch-speaking colonists came to South Africa, they brought with them the Roman Dutch law, which had been revived in the 16th and 17th centuries in Holland, the province of Holland particularly, and through the Netherlands. And the, the, the Roman law notions of legal process, of equality before the law, and of human dignity. This is a society that still had slavery and citizens and non-citizens until I think the third century of the Christian era when everyone was given Roman citizenship. So the, 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 the idea of impartial adjudication, disinterested adjudication, where I don't sit on a case in which I have an interest, where I sustain my impartiality, the the idea that government power, corporate power, popular power is all subject to external uh, scrutiny by values that are embodied in a constitution or in a legal system. Those were important values. They were torn to bits during apartheid and during the 350 years of white sub sub uh, subordination and domination. And yet 
the apartheid judges, there were enough apartheid judges, there were, there were enough anti-apartheid decisions based on those values that I've been speaking about, those, uh, those values of, of, of human dignity and, and fairness and just process, just enough to make it possible for us to go into the constitutional negotiations of, at the end of apartheid and come up with a much more visionary constitution, one that was supposed to embody and realize those values rather than enable the apartheid government to keep people out. So I, I think I, I, I just wanted to add that, that, that it is part of a tradition that goes back, a flawed tradition, an insufficient tradition, a tradition that you can poke holes in for good reasons, but a tradition that also has a core of importance. And, and I say this when I talk to audiences or I, I give a lecture at a law school, I say, well, there are alternatives we can have President Paul Kagame in Rwanda, who gets 98% of the vote. Wonderful. Wouldn't you like 98% of the vote? But his opponents have a horrible, horrible history of uh, being killed. I'm not accusing him in any. I'm just pointing out. And there is suppression of free speech. Uh, uh, people go to, to Kigali and they say there are no plastic bags on the streets. Well, I would prefer to live with plastic bags on the streets, although I don't want them. I'd prefer to live without them as well. But if I had to choose between plastic bags and a rambunctious, disordered, outspoken society where people on television are not scared of saying Ramaphosa is a windbag, he's empty, has, and we're not talking about intellectual elites or academic elites or suburban elites, we're talking about everyone. You can go into any informal settlement and people will be free to say what they think of Ramaphosa, of Julius Malema, of, 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 of everyone. So uh, I, I think that those, those traditions uh, have, 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 have in, 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 a, in a core of value come to, 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 to people our values in a democratic South Africa. We've got a long way to realize them properly, particularly with the material conditions of life. But I think it's, it's worth seeing the longer history behind them. I like that. And it leads me, I mean, we've got a few minutes left here. And my, my last question for you is, you know, one of the reasons we, we run this podcast and, and one of the reasons we try and select our clients at NiceWork is that we believe business can be a force for good. We believe that companies, commercial entities who are making profits, if they aim that at helping the average human in making the world better, in making a dent in the problems of our world, the chances of, of success are infinitely higher than waiting for governments to kind of wake up and realize or, or deliver on all of these kind of problems because the, the challenges we face are, are numerous. And I think globally we're starting to see people looking to corporations, looking to companies, looking to business owners, looking to entrepreneurs, looking to, you know, kind of vendors and going like, what are you doing to help all of this that you see around here? And, and 
you know, my, my question to you is you, you were a public servant for, for a long portion of your I life. I still am as prisons inspector. So I'm still trying to, to be servant to the public. But I interrupted you. Thank you. So, so yeah, my question to you is, is what role do you see businesses and brands playing in the improving of kind of society in general? Like where do you think businesses should be thinking and which direction should they be putting their kind of energy into helping make the world a better place for as, as trite as that sounds? No, it's not trite. It's not trite at all because there's been a massive rethinking in America and Western Europe. Uh, what the late era of, of liberal rule of lawism has produced are increasing disparities, increasing inequalities, both within societies and globally, where the uh, push to migrant cross-border migration, both here in Southern Africa, South Africa at one point, it might still have, had uh, the largest number of, of undocumented cross-border migrants anywhere in the world, largest number of, of asylum seekers. So when, when, we, when Trump talks about a wall uh, on, on the southern border of Texas or when the, uh, the, the, the Greeks, as they're now doing, have built a wall uh, across their border with Turkey, across from the Bosphorus uh, in the Aegean Sea, uh, we also know of those issues. They, they are real throughout Africa, and they are a product of grotesque global inequity. And that grotesque global inequity also has a, a local dimension in, in most societies, including our own. The last 27 years has seen the emergence of a new elite, uh, an elite uh, black-dominated, still white people like myself, have a disproportionate hold on resources and income. But there's a new elite, uh, and inequality has grown within South Africa because of that. So that, that's a long way of not answering your question, Ross, but I want to answer it, which is that we cannot continue. We have to there, – there's no doubt uh, that corporate aggregations, corporate accumulations have produced economic growth, have produced – economic welfare. But the question for me is on what terms? We cannot say, look at how much they've done. Look at what the patent system, the patent system is full of, 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 of wrongs and inequities and holes. It can be improved. So can corporate aggregation, co corporate accumulation and corporate objectives. So I've somewhat abstractly answered your question and said, we, we have to have a rethinking. We, we don't have to live in a world in which some of us, like me, have got almost everything that we could want materially. Warmth, shelter, mobility, connectivity, uh, 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 full stomachs, and others don't. We can reorder this and that corporations and their accumulations, what they do with their accumulations, how they run and of course, there behind your question, there's also the imperative question of the climate uh, and, and global warming and corporations' part in that as they've accumulated beneficially for many humans. They've also destroyed the environment. So 
your question is a good one, and we have to, we have to, we have no choice to think differently for reasons of equity, for reasons of sustainability, for simple reasons of survival. Thank you. Thank you so much. Like I, I was so excited about this interview because I, I, like I see that there's sort of examples of how to do this. So, so not necessarily in the business world as much, but I think that's why looking to institutions like the constitution court, where there's, there's really strong values, there's really strong kind of guiding principles and documents and traditions that you can follow. I think there are examples of how companies can can learn from these things and sort of improve because it is an imperative and it is important. And I think supporting that is is one of the things that we, we love to do. And, and thank you so much for all the work and the dedication that you've given to South Africa and its people. So thank you for your time and for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for your generosity, Ross, and what a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And we'll catch all of you in the next one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa, and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.